Welcome to the Base Path Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. Today's guest is a recent inductee to the Massachusetts Baseball Coaches Association Hall of Fame, a former three-time state champion coach at Lincoln Sudbury, Kirk Fredericks. Kirk, thanks so much for taking the time. No problem. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, this was kind of an unusual induction. I was reading a little bit about you accepting that induct induction and being inducted in the Hall of Fame. And you said it was a, it came as a surprise to you because you haven't been coaching at Lincoln Sudbury since 2015. You've been an assistant coach at Wellesley and you're a pretty young guy, 49 years old. So for this to come about now, what was your reaction when you first got the news? Well, first, I don't know. I don't feel young anymore. I turned 50 two weeks ago. So oh, you did. Uh, Happy belated. My, <laughs> my shoulder, I have a frozen shoulder and then I have a, a, a knee that's a problem. But I would say that the surprise was more of, you know, I'm not, I'm not actively part of the MBCA on the e-board anymore because I can't get to the meetings. But when I got the email about the agenda, I always look in the agenda and see if there's anything on there. When I looked in there, I had seen that Steve Frecker had nominated me. So that was the surprise. I was like, whoa, because usually you kind of give people a heads up. So I, a smile came to my face. And uh, so, that, so that was the surprise. And then, it's allowed me to kind of reflect on me as a player when I was a kid and and then all my coaching and all the people that I intertwined with. And there was a lot of little satellite connections that were really cool that I hadn't thought about in a while. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And like I said, so you hadn't been at Lincoln Sudbury in 2015, and that was obviously a, a kind of a well-publicized story. And you it turned out you seem to be kind of a legend in the coaching community because after that, so I should, I should kind of give our reader or our audience context. It's in 2015, there was a dispute between you and some parents and the, the athletic director at the time, who was a newer athletic director at Lincoln Sudbury, I think it was his second year there, decided not to rehire you. And then the coaching community kind of rallied around you. The Lincoln Sudbury players rallied around you. And the way that it ended I would think that kind of would lead a, leave a bitter taste in your mouth and give you some negative feelings of when you reflected on your career. How did it? How did that evolve over the last eight nine years as you were getting ready to accept this induction? Well, just to clear up, there there's no really negatives. Um, I mean, that's the part that only the people that are in my circle know the truth, and the the truth is is that. It really was one or two parents that were, were buddies with the new athletic director. And their kids played on his team. And the athletic, the newer athletic director, I mean, the old regime was awesome. The newer regime, I mean, he played a tournament game with his whole JV team because he couldn't keep control of his kids. They're all suspended. So, you know, those type of things. I was planning on walking away anyways with my young family. I had taken all my equipment was 80% of mine. It was all at my house. All my coaches and the trainer and everyone knew I was walking away. And our group, the tough part about walking away was I had so many kids coming back that we were we were gearing up for another state championship that next year. And I firmly believe we would have won one. So as I learned from my father, when the season's over, never make a decision on the spot. So my plan was take everything as if I was done and then make a decision in the fall or, or early winter. And at that point, Hopefully they would hire my assistant coach, if if not me, or if I could make it work and change my mind. And when I walked in for the end of season meeting, I kind of knew I got a sense based on his behavior, which was inappropriate all year, 
that might go that way. So Coach Blake and I, had he had decided he's going to go to the Cape and do stuff, and I decided we were leaving. And so I wasn't surprised. I was just like, yeah, this is the plan anyways. You just upped it a couple months. And so it actually helped me because I have a hard time saying no to anyone. And so saying no to all those kids was going to be really difficult. And it kind of forced my hand, which was good. And then I could jump in in a lesser role with Wellesley, and it was kind of the perfect scenario. So just to clear that up, it all is good. The kids were awesome. The parents were awesome. Dave Portnoy at Barstool Sports was awesome. <laughs> and the tough part is when you're getting phone calls during school from Scott Zolak and, and everyone else. So, But I try to keep it low-key because anytime you're involved with those type of things, it's the parents. And, and the, the parents are, obviously have a kid. And when you speak negatively about a parent, kid's in the middle of it. And it just wasn't fair to them. So walk away with your head high, focus on your family, and we moved on. Yeah. Did it cause any any embarrassment for you that it was so so public and so in the news that it that it played out that way? Or like, how did you feel about it in the meeting when you were like, man, this is going to be out there. Everybody's going to know about this. Oh, no. I mean, the kids are great. So something happened earlier in the year and that was stupid. They accused one of my assistants of something and we had all these meetings. And so they the AD asked me, told me to lie to the team and not be truthful to the team. And I was like, absolutely not. Every, that's everything I stand for is telling the team the truth. So I told the team the truth and they kept telling me, he kept calling me on the bus on the way to the game that you need to not be truthful. And I was like, no, I'm going to be truthful to my kids. And so I told the kids the story and we went on and went on to win that game in the last inning. And then whatever happens, happens. And I told them that I wanted them to keep it to themselves. And at the end of the year, when I was gone, the parents came to me and told me that when they found out, they didn't find out to the summer. They're like, do you know the kids never said one word to us? You asked them to, to keep, keep that to themselves when you were being truthful, and they kept it to themselves. Like, that's the respect they have for you. And, and that's kind of, I tell the truth, and that's how it kind of runs, and all is good. There's no embarrassment. There's nothing to be embarrassed of. It's Athletic directors, they're in a tough situation. They they make 100000 plus a year. They got to feed their family. And you could have a coach who works the kids hard. And some parents aren't going to like that when their kids aren't playing. And it's going to create some meetings. Or you could have someone who's just a yes person and create less problems. And for for $6,000 a year, what would you want? You want less less problems. So the easy decision as an AD is to hire someone who's going to be Less of an issue, less issue for you, because you got to take care of your job first. So I totally get it. So it all works. It all works. Hmm. I mean, you would hope that that everybody would be in it for the best interest of the kids, not take the money out of it and take out the what's harder, what's easier, and all that stuff. But I, I get where you're coming from. That is, you hear that so much from coaches now that that's the trend for athletic directors to kind of just want to remove any possible conflict and headaches from the mix. And it's difficult. Is is that something you've seen? I know you've been in the travel ball space with the Roughnecks. Is that easier because parents know what they're signing up for? Or they're paying for it. They know the coaches styles and there, there are plenty of different options and they're choosing it or is it, has it gotten worse? So I'd say there's two things. The first thing is Nancy O'Neill once told me that it doesn't matter how many games you win. 
50% of the kids, because I was taking it personal. My 2002 through 2004, I was taking things personally, not winning or dealing with kids who were, they were partying or whatever else, trying to get the kids to do what I needed them to do. And she said, if you take it personally, you're not, you're not going to be long here. So she convinced me that 2005 was the first time I was able to not take something personally when someone's upset with me because I chose player A to pitch the sixth instead of player B because of something I see in practice versus their, their ability from some other place. And so I learned that from her. I learned from my father that if they're going to get you, they're going to get you. But you see it from Wellesley Girls Basketball, probably one of the greatest coaches I've ever seen. They got him to stop coaching, and thank God he's back now. But you could go anywhere. And so so they're going to get you, they're going to get you. And it, it all the matter of does a, does a school system have a way where they meet with you first, then they meet with the AD, then they meet with the principal, and then the superintendent, or do they go right to the principal? And recently I heard about a, a soccer coach in the area who um, the principal's doing uh, our research on what went on. And this was a team that has gone deep in the tournament, state championships during the season, this, that, whatever. Well, the athletic director is not doing it. It's so like, what's their job? <laughs> That's their job. Like, so people go right to the top and, and I, so I get it and that's okay. And that's one of the, the best things about coaching travel ball is you work for somebody who runs the program. So Roughnecks, it's Steve August and Steve and I have battles all the time. We don't always get along, but he knows I'm in it for the kids. He knows that he can trust me with 20 kids in Texas, California, Tennessee. He knows I'm going to watch them at night. The parents trust me. I'm going to coach the game. I'm going to try to make them better. I'm going to try to help them get in college. I'm going to make sure they get on the flights. I'm going to make sure they're fed. I'm cooking their dinner. I'm washing their clothes. And if a parent has an issue... The, the thing is, it doesn't have to go through the AD. It doesn't have to go through the principal. It doesn't have to go to the superintendent. Or if you accidentally swear, you don't have to get yelled at for 50 minutes in a meeting or something like that. You can make mistakes, and it's okay. But education, we talk about making mistakes, but when people make mistakes, we, we attack them, and it's too bad instead of trying to help them get better. So the great thing about travel ball is the, the decision can be made with trust, and someone's upset about playing time. Well, you know, how do we change it? My father once told me, you're when I was crying as a sixth grader about my, my role on the basketball team, and, and I was a pretty good player, said, here you go. Here's the phone number, 781-344-8617. Called Dan McGarry, your coach. He dialed the number. He handed me the phone. I talked to Mr. McGarry, whose son was my best man in my wedding, and he explained the situation. It made total sense. He knew I was upset. He adjusted a few things and it all worked out. And that's kind of how travel ball works. When you have a, a good person behind you, it doesn't have to worry about his job. So that, that's kind of the difference. Yeah, your dad was obviously a big influence on you. He's also a legendary coach, a 1995 inductee to the NBCA Hall of Fame. He won 337 games and three state, state titles with Braintree. I, I was reading somewhere that he advised you not to take the job at Lincoln Sudbury when you were initially hired. Why Why did he do that? I mean, I went and Ted Tripp came to me one time, the athletic director at Wellesley, and was like, hey, there's a job open in Sudbury. I think you should go for it. And my only question was, is that Coach Poulin was kind of a legend 
And I didn't know what the story was, but I was going into a hornet's nest. <laughs> so, which was fine. I mean, I was a young Rick Patino. I thought I knew it all, right? So <laughs> when I met, I was like, oh my God, the, the varsity has home and away uniforms. JV freshman team has home and away uniforms. I got this batting cage under the gym, pitching lab under the gym. I have all these things, these I had 35 residents contacting me. All wanted to tell me how I should run the program if I was when I was hired. Like, but I went. My parents would go to Town Spa every Friday night, and so when I could, I would meet them down there before I had a family, and I'd sit and have pizza. And I was telling them all excited about it, and he was like, "I don't think you should take this job." So I don't remember the reasons. I don't even remember if he told me, but I was like, "Well, I'm taking it because the worst thing could happen is." I don't have to coach there next year. So it was kind of, you think I it think was, the, you think it was like more the Lincoln Sudbury program or he just didn't think you were ready and nothing to do with ready. I mean, I was coaching Legion baseball at the time, which at the time was no, not really travel ball. So all the best players play Legion baseball up here. Right. It definitely wasn't ready. It was the right job wasn't around. So I started looking for varsity basketball jobs and I was a finalist at Needham. I actually ended up getting the Wellesley boys job and turned it down two days later for a couple of reasons. But um, I, I, I think I think it was more along the lines of it was something that was unfamiliar to him, an area that was unfamiliar. It wasn't the Bay State League. So that would be my guess. So he didn't. And plus the person there got relieved of their duty. So that that was a little concern. So I think that was the reason. But I mean, I was all in and that simple. What do you think made you such a great or such a winning coach? You had a career record of, let me find it here. It was like two, all right, 269 and 68 in 14 years, three state titles, several future MLB draft picks. What made you such a great high school baseball coach? Well, I don't, I don't know if I was a great high school baseball coach. I think I'm a high school baseball coach who would go to clinics and Lincoln Sudbury was, would pay for me to go to clinics and make myself a better coach. You can be the greatest high school baseball coach, but if you don't have players who can play each position, I mean, I'm the same high school baseball coach who my, I coached two years at Weston. And the first year I had a good team, but I didn't have a catcher. And so we were 10 and 10 because every time they threw the ball to the catcher and went to the backstop. (laughs) And so anyone who singled or walked ended up with a triple and they can't win games that way. So I'm not I'm not so great that I, I could I could figure that out. So I, it starts with the players getting the kids to buy in. I got there and not everyone would buy in. They were talented, but I listened to a couple of people, Mr. Oteri, Mr. Moore, Mr. Mahoney, and they everything they told me was correct and I tried to change the culture a little bit. And the next thing you know, I would say the, the biggest things that helped the L S kids was I mean, they're just so athletically competitive. I mean, think about the spring, right? When I was there, baseball dominated. Lacrosse was second. And I know that made Mr. Vaughn very upset. And I think it's changed a little bit. Now, when I left, Vaughn was able to get the kids where he couldn't get the athletes before. But the lacrosse team, even though we were better than them, they were always top four in the state. The volleyball team, top team in the state. The track team with Mel Gonzalez, top team in the state. The rugby team. So every single kid was going out there spending two hours of practice going and lifting afterwards before like they just worked so hard. It was established. So that blueprint was there. You add in that kids were either lifting at Lincoln Sudbury has a great wellness program or with Cressy when Cressy came into the mix 
and some kids would go there and he would come to the field and help us out. And then some kids would go to Longfellow. So they would buy in there. Then the kids would buy in in the summer. When I got there, the best kids were playing Legion ball. And then the younger kids were playing travel ball because that was up and coming. So we would have five kids that were playing Roughnecks before I was even involved. They were 13 years old. And then we'd have five kids playing NEB. And then we'd have three kids playing RBI. And then the rest would be playing town baseball. So, um, so they're playing and getting better. So all of those things, and you add in, I changed two things at LS that I thought were, were crucial that helped us win. And you put it all together, and there was our winning formula. What were the two things? The first one was in 2005, I was like, man, every, every season I'm seeing Nancy O'Neill have meetings at the end of the season. So she had this thing, shared leadership, she called it. And it got a lot of plot press from Fred Smurlis, who was on the radio at the time, and his kid played at LS. And they, the heavy males, old school coaches kind of took it as, as everyone gets a trophy, which wasn't even close to what it was because they're like, everyone's the captain. No, it was more like, you know, Nancy O'Neill's meeting with the soccer team when the season's over. But instead of meeting about the soccer season, she's meeting with the three parents whose kids didn't get to be captain. Or she's meeting with the kid who didn't get to be captain because the team voted just the senior captain. And I was like, this is kind of, I'd see it every season, every sport. This whole captain thing is broken. Like, um, and I had in 2004, I had a captain who just shouldn't have been a captain. He was worried about himself and it just wasn't good. I had no leadership. And I was like, why? I, I have these kids being leaders and then they graduate and then I don't have any leadership, but I spent half the season creating leaders. So why not have a situation where you train them all be, to be leaders in baseball? And so now I'm training the juniors, I'm training the sophomores to be leaders. So when these kids graduate, I already have a, a blueprint where these kids know how to lead. And, you know, in 2005, I had a senior catcher who was a captain and that's when I started it. I was like, I'm done with this. And I told him I, he, he wasn't working hard. I said he wasn't going to catch for us, so he didn't play. And we had to go on and win a state championship. And it was because of the change of that culture. And, I mean, I remember when I was a senior captain, a kid named Tommy Riggy, whose kid is going to UConn to play baseball, I was miserable. I had a horrible weekend hitting-wise, and I wasn't being a very good leader. And he got me out of the funk, pulling around with me, doing some soft toss before the game. And I always remember that, like, here's a freshman who took a leadership role and turned me around. So why can't I have the same thing at Lincoln Sudbury? And so that's what we moved to, where I would train every kid how to be a leader. So on this day, when your girlfriend broke up with you and you're our shortstop, the second baseman could help lead. On this day, when you're 0 for 14, even though you're going to Boston College on a baseball scholarship, someone else can be the leader that day. And so that's what we went to, and it, and it really, really helped us. The second thing was, and I kind of everyone does this now, but at the time, not everyone was doing it, and I thought we did it pretty well, was focusing on the process instead of the outcome. So it really, the kids really bought in, especially 2007 and beyond, that it wasn't, we didn't try to win the games. We just tried to do what we practiced. And with the idea, we were adding tools to our toolbox for when we made the tournament, we had more tools and the games didn't matter. Then we'd look up the scoreboard at the end of the game and see what the score was. Now, of course, I had to coach the game to win, but they never questioned me when we were bunting, when we were down four runs or we were 
bunting up four runs or we were hit like it was all about trying to improve and I think that helped because if we were down 10 to 1 to BC high in the third inning most teams waste the next four innings and our philosophy was let's use the next four innings not to win the game but to become better baseball players that will help us in the games moving forward and you'd watch so many teams that we'd be up 10 to 1 in the third inning and they just quit and they would waste the next four innings so the kids at LS really bought in and really did it, and it's a credit to them. So the game would be over, and they'd be like, hey, what was the score today? And no one would know the score, and that's kind of where we went to. It was, it was really nice to watch, and it's all of them. They didn't have to buy in, but they did. I know your family life was part of the reason that you were considering walking away in 2015 because you had just had twins or maybe had twins on the way. You had two other kids. Have you been able to, and I know there's a trade-off because the, there's the joy of the family life on one side too that you're gaining now. Have you been able to find the same fulfillment in terms of level of competition and, and leading through the travel ball space as you did coaching as a head coach at the high school level? I know right now you're an assistant at Wellesley. So I only was an assistant at Wellesley the first two years I left. Oh, is that LS. right? Okay. Yeah. Then I couldn't do it. So the first year... I was all in. I was there every day. I, I practiced. Coach Kane was unbelievable. We coached in the summer together for Roughnecks. Right. And we used, to ar- we used to argue about who was going to be the head coach and the assistant. Both of us wanted to be the assistant. So he had, I don't remember how it went down. I, I believe he asked me. And I told him that I would never take his job unless he walked away on his own. And so when he heard all the chatter about I'm only in it for to take his job since I teach in the system, he he put it aside. He knew the whole story, and we're all good. So I would practice the guys as if it was my team, and I would take my stuff, and he took it as a learning experience. He learned a lot of stuff from me. And then during the games, he would coach the kids. And I'd, I'd give him a thought here or there, but it kind of worked out, and we went to the state championship. And it's kind of good that the, the guy who was in the AD's ear was sitting in a field, and I have a message how... He's sitting there during the state championship, really worried because we're up one nothing. Here he is, Kirk leaves, and now he's winning a state championship somewhere else. So, but it makes all people so. Uh, I'm better sitting here, and then the next year, my home life. I have, I have some, I have some needy things go, that go on in my home life with that my kids need, and so I couldn't be there every day. So the second year, and I came, I'd have to be leaving mid-practice or when I get a phone call and things like that. So I became an assistant coach who did less of what I did the year before. But Rob Kane allowed me to be able to do that. And then I'm an all-in person, so I couldn't do that anymore. And then my needs became greater that I couldn't even be there for that. So so then I couldn't do the, the Wells Baseball anymore because of that. So I haven't been involved with high school. Do I miss it? Absolutely. I miss creating the lists. I miss knowing who's going to start three years down the road because I'm so invested in seeing the, the summer teams play. And I missed doing the winter stuff with all the youth programs and the kids and all the things. But I, my time schedule with my kids, I would not be able to run the program the right way. I would need to have an assistant who could do all the things that I would want to do. And I don't know where you would ever find that to run a program the right way, which is one of the reasons why Wellesley baseball this year was not an option when Rob retired. And it's great that they found Ted Novio. Uh, as far as Roughnecks go, yeah, the traveling with the Roughnecks is, I, 
I know every program does it different. Scott Patterson does it different, but I can't imagine doing it the major where the parents can just drop the kids off at the airport and then trust us to take them. And then if you can afford to go and your work allows you, they, the parents come down. If you can't, the kids are with us the whole time. And then they stay with us. They are in the hotel with us. Like that's just an awesome experience sitting in a, a an airport and trying to spread out three groups of people because planes are canceled. Like I just love doing all that stuff and cooking the meals for 20 people and, and all that stuff. It's just awesome. I can't imagine going to Vandy, going to UNC, Duke. I've been all over the country. When you sit there and talk to Coach Corbin, because he's trying to get one of your players, and I, I sit there and I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, like, here, I'm talking to the best coach in the country, and it's like we're boys. So that experience, I, I just, it's just awesome. When did you, I, obviously your dad was a great inspiration for you and kind of a mentor or a sounding board along the way. And I was reading your, you at the age of 12, you got your first coaching job as your sister's three, four grade basketball coach. As a junior and senior in high school, you were starting to coach high school baseball camps. When did you start to know, like, this is what I'm here to do. This is, this is going to be my calling in life. So my Nana, Shirley, used to always say every, when she was alive, she used to say uh, by the pool or whatever else, like, you work so well with kids. You're always around kids. When I write a book, it's going to be about the kid with the ball and hang and with kids and kids. And then Matt Andrews, whose father was Gus Andrews, a longtime Catholic Memorial coach, he coached Ronnie Perry. Matt Andrews is a coach's son, is a great person who I love dearly and miss, miss seeing him. He, uh, he came to me and said, let's coach, let's coach basketball. And so we did that. And everything from the draft, we drafted the big girl, the tall girl who was and then the second one, we grabbed the girl who, who could dribble the best. And then the third one was my sister, who was a decent athlete. And then the fourth person, we grabbed someone who was like worked hard, who could play defense. So like putting that together, kind of looking back on it, making that team, seeing my dad, like going through my dad's list on his desk of this year, next year, the year after, sitting at his Legion games in the summer, and then being with him from four in the afternoon to going to other Legion games after and then sitting in the ground round talking baseball and then working basketball camps to make money. And Dick Steele from Silver Lake and Jerry Morelli from Weymouth and BC High. I'd, I'd work those basketball camps that I attended when I was a kid and they'd be like, can you be in charge of six high school girls and run the second, third and fourth graders? And they totally trusted some 15-year-old to that. And I'd run the program from nine to three and it gave him a great experience and so like all those things put together i was like all right this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna go to school to do this and i had a choice you made uconn or springfield college and i lacked confidence and decided i wasn't good enough to play at UMaine or uconn uh coach baylock and coach winkin were not very happy with me and i chose springfield college because i was gonna be a teacher and a coach and I was lucky enough that they were Division Two and an elite program, and I got to play in the College World Series. So, Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And you also, I read, played an entire season of high school baseball with a broken arm. No one tried to stop you from doing that? Yeah, the parents. So it, it really, it just, if I'm freezing on a grass field for tryouts. I'm sitting there. I, I broke my arm. I, 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 Rich Leverault who pitched at BC, 
were playing them in basketball. He played for Canton and he took a charge and I landed on my wrist and found out it was a broken bone. So I was in a cast. I was crushed. It was my junior year and I was just bored. I'm like, I can't sit here every day for two hours on the field and, and just stand here. So I picked up a bat. We do this thing called, my father used to call it live, where you'd have five batters and the team in the field, you'd get up there, you have the pitching machine, one pitch, hit it, and you play live. And it's fun because you're always moving. And I loved it. So I grabbed a bat with one hand and swung a miss probably 50 times until I figured it out. And then I played. And then my father was like, actually, you're doing pretty good with that. So we went to Beacon Sporting Goods, bought a glove so I could catch it like Jim Abbott, take it off and throw it. And then I started just doing that. And next thing you know, we had a couple injuries. We moved our outfielder to catcher, I think. So we needed an outfielder. And I went out and did it and started doing it in the game. And I was able to bunt and hit one-handed. And I think some parents gave my father a hard time because he chose a one-handed kid who was the coach's son <laughs> over, over two-handed kids. But he always kept that away from me. But I did pretty well. I remember Tommy Larson from Walpole. And I always say this. He was the MVP of the league. And he threw a, a slider. He went to Tampa. He was like, he was like, you were four for six off me with one hand, but 0 for seven with two. <laughs> and uh, I still remember Coach Tompkins walked out to him. And I went up to bat the first time. And he's laughing on the mound because I played Bay State games with him and we were friends. And he went out to him and started reaming into him. Do not take this as a joke. Strike him out. <laughs> and so it's a good experience. It's it's it, it came back to me because some umpires and college coaches tell that story because they were there and saw me. But my son, Tyler, broke his finger. Wow. He's a, a pretty good soccer player. Broke his finger fooling around in the yard. And he wanted to still play. So he got it casted. And so he could play soccer and he was also playing baseball. And he, without knowing that I did that, I showed him how to swing one-handed and catch one-handed. And he went and did it two seasons ago as a seven-year-old. And everyone was amazed that he's batting one-handed and catching out there. So, I mean, I didn't tell anyone that I also did it, but uh, so it it was fun to see my son also do that. That's amazing. It's in the genes. All right, Kirk, do you have, we do a segment at the end of all these podcasts. It's it's called Three Up, Three Down. It's just general interest baseball questions, stuff that helped you fall in love with the sport. Would you be up for doing that? Yeah, I'll feel like I'm with Felger and Maz and, and, and Bedard, right? Because that's what they do on Tuesdays. Yeah, similar segment, only baseball. Absolutely. Hey, it's producer Dave. Welcome to Three Up, Three Down. Wicked way better than Felger and Maz. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Three questions, both Kirk and Dan, neither one prepared for these. So here we go. Question number one, and Kirk, you're the guest, so you filled this one first. What was the toughest loss you remember in a baseball game that you had to endure, either as a player, a coach, or a fan? Well, since we don't have hours for me to think about, it, the first one, be able to reflect with all the LS kids at the ceremony, I would say it would be we always had the prom the night before a game and a tournament game. And so my second year there, we were loaded, and I thought we were going to win a state championship. And my, my players spent a little longer out and probably drinking not water or soda. <laughs> and, and the next day, we just didn't have it. And Masco, who had Coach Delaney, who was a great coach, saved their ace and beat us and we were terrible so 
We were terrible on the mound. We got there late. We ran first and thirds poorly. We, We were just awful. And we lost that game. And I remember my father told me it took five months for me to get over that. I took it personally. Like, I just couldn't believe it. I was a miserable person. And so that would be the the toughest loss and then frame the way I coached at Lincoln Sudbury thereafter. Mm, That's a good answer, but you shouldn't beat yourself up too bad. I I, I don't think you weren't at prom, were you? Or you (laughs) you weren't with the kids at prom. What are you going to do? They only get one prom night. That's too bad. It's a shame. No, and one of my players at the banquet showed up late, and he goes, I think I got here still earlier than I got there the next day for that game that we blew. So, <laughs> okay. Dan, your thoughts, worst loss? Worst loss was I, I was in the majors, which was our 10 to 12-year-old age level, and we were in the championship series. It was a three-game series. First game, I was 11 at the time, and I think I was like two for three or three for three with a few RBIs. We end up winning game one, and I was scheduled to pitch game two. I wasn't a regular pitcher throughout the season, but in the championship series, you were playing three games, so you needed to kind of come up with a third mm-hmm. pitcher. My coach was like, oh, we'll go with our 11-year-old who just had a great game one, and we'll save our 12-year-old for game three. So I'm going into game two like, I'm going to be the hero. I got all these hits in game one. Now I'm going to pitch and get the win in game two. I think I gave up like six runs and one and a third innings. I got rocked, struck out with the bases loaded that game. It was just a nightmare of a game. So that was a tough loss. And then we ended up losing game three because they saved their ace for game three. So that was a, that was a tough loss when I was 11. Well, even for 11 year olds, hitters hit and pitchers pitch. You shouldn't have been on the mound. Uh, Coaching mistake. (laughs) All right. Question number two, Daniel, start off with this one. Okay. Many years from now, when all of us are no longer walking this earth and we arrive in baseball heaven, who's the first baseball personality that you'll want to meet and talk to? Mike Schmidt. Mike Schmidt was my favorite player growing up. I went to his Hall of Fame induction in Cooperstown, which is on theme with our Hall of Fame induction today. But yeah, Mike Schmidt was the best. I used to, I had a VHS when I was growing up of him. It was kind of the journey leading up to his 500th home run. So for they kind of followed him for like two weeks. And I, I wore out that VHS. I probably watched it a hundred times between the ages of like six and eight. But he was my favorite. Well, you still got a chance to meet him before we all go to heaven. But is have you ever had a chance to meet him or even like be in the same room with him or anything? Well, when he was getting inducted in Cooperstown, I actually went back to Cooperstown when Jim Rice was inducted. This was, Mm. I don't know when that was, probably like 2009-ish. And Mike Schmidt was there signing autographs. So I got his autograph. He was sitting up, set set up at a booth and he had to pay like 50 bucks for it. But I I shook his hand and got his autograph. Well, we got to get him on the show here. Yeah. Kirk, same question. And really, it's living or dead baseball personality that you'd like to meet. So I would say Augie Garrido. Um, I've saw Augie Garrido speak a couple of times, but, you know, whether he coached in a couple of different places. And I have his video from when he was coaching at Texas. And I watch it all the time to his interaction with the kids. You'll see little videos online. Definitely an old school coach, but said it how it is and how he played the game. I would just love to sit down. I think of it as when I went to the ABCA national conferences and you sit with the big wigs. I got a chance to do that once or twice. And just listening to them speak and tell the stories, I just love hearing that. And I would just love to hear a bunch of Augie Grito, one of the all-time greatest college baseball coaches' stories. Yeah, so I didn't know this. I looked it up. But Augie passed away in 2018 and uh, looks like five five national championships as a coach. 
You'll still see those videos pop up on on Twitter sometimes where he's giving like pep talks before games or legendary pep mm-hmm. talks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all pieces from a main video. It's it's worth watching. Oh, I'll check it out. All right, final question for three up, three down. And Kirk, you get to go first. What is the greatest defensive play in a baseball game you've ever witnessed, either in person or on TV? Defensive play. I was going to say catch, but let's let's not forget the infielders and the catchers, right? I am, so I have two in my head, and one is my team and one is an old team. I always am, I'm always partial to the Jim Edmonds catch in center field. Oh, yeah. That he had. As far as my team goes, I, and again, it's on my head because I just had this ceremony last week, but we had in the North sectional finals, a line, their other team's best player up one, hits a line drive to short. For one out, shortstop catches it, steps on second for two outs, throws the first for the third out. So it was bases loaded, nobody out, up 5-4. We advanced to the uh, wow the state semifinals with a kid who I had just brought in the soft-throwing lefty who pitched only two innings all year. And, um, you know, and that was inspired off of my father did that in the state championship in Milford, and it worked out too. Wow. So that's on my mind. Triple Triple play. To preserve a one-run lead, not not there's no timing better than that. You're allowed to say the other one. Yeah, tell us the other one. Better to be lucky than good. <laughs> <laughs> you you had an, another another alternative though. Do you want to tell us what that one was? Oh, just my father in the state championship running Tony Costa, a light throwing lefty, which was why I did it. And he got a kid who was trying to hit the ball to the moon, hit it off the end of the bat for the same thing, and it was the same thing here. And that was kind of it was that a was triple it was a triple play that. That time also, or no, just got his, his. His was not a triple play, but yeah. what ended up happening was the third out in the ninth inning happened. They won the state championship, and then Tony Costa is like spread eagle jumping in the air, front page of the Globe. Love it, and like that was like the only inning he pitched all year. Wow. So, <laughs> uh, I would I would argue that the it might be sacrilege, but the Jim Edmonds catch is perhaps better than the Willie Mays catch because Willie Mays ran a country mile to get there. But Jim Edmonds had to dive, full-out dive with his back to the home plate. I mean, it was insane. Dan, your thoughts? Well, that I love that Jim Edmonds catch because also he's getting close to the fence and he lays out and yeah. dives. You're like, man, he almost went head first in the wall. <laughs> I really like the Mark Burley backhanded play. I don't know if you've seen this. I don't know if it's a bunt down the first baseline or a swinging bunt, <laughs> but it was opening day, I want to say like 2010, and he catches he's left-handed so his his uh, let me think of how he would so it's a backhanded play and he kind of either goes behind the back or yeah. between his legs yeah. from the glove and then throws the guy out at first base it was a pretty crazy play and he was a i think he was a gold glove winner like he only threw like low 80s but he survived because he was just great competitor great athlete on the mound excellent all right this round of three up three down was Better than a triple play in the ninth inning. You both <laughs> did very well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kirk. And back to you, Dan. All right. Kirk, thanks so much for squeezing us in during the school day. Thanks for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production. <laughs>